Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas About the Dying Forests. Government maps show that 83% of all the trees, of all species, in all areas of Quebec show signs of decline. And once you get the beginning of decline, it gets worse rapidly. It's insidious and you don't really notice it unless you're looking each year at these stands that you've become accustomed to and see the changes going on and the, the gradual dying back of the treetops and the uh, loss of bark and the trees dying, uh, trees that shouldn't be dying, young, young medium-aged trees. The top of Camel's Hump Mountain, the area where it was originally spruce and fir, looks as if a giant hand came across it and wiped out all of the spruces. It doesn't look like a forest any longer. It began on the mountaintops of Europe and North America and spread. At first, it involved mainly evergreens. Then the maples in southern Quebec began to die, and the problem was noticed in Ontario as well. Other hardwood species like beech and cherry also became involved. And what has happened so far could be only a harbinger of worse yet to come. It's called forest decline, and where it's worst, in places like Czechoslovakia, the forests look like they've been bombed. Perhaps in a way they have. No one can point with confidence to a single cause, but there is one thing all the dying forests have in common. They've all been severely stressed by air pollution. Tonight, in the final program of our series on the world's forests, we investigate forest decline. The series is written and presented by David Cayley. Dale Willows lives beside 50 acres of woods in the farming country north of Guelph, Ontario. She moved there 10 years ago, seeking a retreat from urban civilization and a chance to be close to nature. She built her house beside a stream and enjoyed the seclusion of her woods. Then, in the summer of 1984, she began to notice that something was wrong. The tops of the trees in certain areas where I was bird watching were, were very sparse and that I could see the birds in the middle of, of July. And that's quite abnormal. Usually in the middle of July you give up bird watching just about because the, the birds are up in the dense foliage. So uh, I didn't know what it was and I just kind of started looking around and noticing that quite a few trees were like this. Trees that seemed otherwise healthy were losing their leaves at the top. And then uh, I started asking around because I was noticing it was quite widespread and started asking friends and neighbors if they knew why these trees were looking this way. And uh, nobody seemed to know. And I, I was just kind of curious. I really wasn't worried or anything. And then by later that season, some of these same trees were turning autumn colors in the early part of August. And that was very strange to me, and I didn't know what it was about. And I, again, was asking people, and I started calling universities and, and uh, foresters and so on to say, why are these trees changing color? Why are they losing their leaves? Some of them were losing their bark in the upper branches, and nobody seemed to know. That winter, Dale Willows came across a couple of articles about the dieback of maples in southern Quebec and started to wonder if the same thing was happening in her woodlot. The following summer, she noticed that things were getting worse. Trees that had looked a little bit sick the previous summer were looking almost dead. They, they changed very rapidly from looking, you know, just, just subtly 
abnormal to looking like they were ready to be cut down. And in fact, road crews started to go around and mark trees for cutting on the roadside trees. And this was not just a few trees, this was hundreds of trees. And at this point, I was getting quite alarmed that how come nobody is saying anything about this? How come nobody besides me is noticing this? And when I tell my friends, initially they wouldn't know what I was talking about, but they gradually began to say, well, yeah, I see what you mean. It's happening in my yard too. So I started taking pictures of trees and uh, the collection of pictures that I accumulated alarmed me because I started, I decided, well, I'll show a healthy one and a sick one. And I was doing this for sugar maple. Uh, as one of the species. And with sugar maple, other than in a dense woodlot, I couldn't find a healthy one. And it scared the heck out of me. Dale Willows also started to notice the same symptoms of small, pale leaves and dieback in the crown in other common species like ash. And she began to get an uncomfortable feeling that there was really no one in charge. As I became aware of how widespread it was, and that nobody was counting the trees as they died. Nobody knew how healthy or sick the forests were in our province. Uh, uh, there were some little studies going on, but there really was not a, uh, anybody I could go to that would say, you know, how many trees should be dying each year. Um, I became increasingly depressed, and I became so feeling so helpless and so depressed about it that I kept thinking, well, I'm going to have to move. I can't stand to stay here and watch this happen. And then I said to myself, where could you move to? And I decided that I would have to stay here and fight. And I guess that's where at least it helped my depression to get together with other people who had concerns and start raising awareness about it and learning about it and seeing if there was something that could be done about it. And that's helped a lot. When I see a dying tree, it doesn't make me feel great, but it, at least I feel that I'm doing the best that I can. The informal organization that resulted was called Tree Watch. Under its auspices, Dale Willows and her friends began to pester politicians and media to start looking up at the trees around them. Eventually, in August of 1988, they organized a major conference on forest decline, which brought together government foresters, concerned citizens, forest industry representatives, and scientists from Canada, Germany, and the United States. I attended the conference, which shuttled between the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education in Toronto and various forest decline sites around southern Ontario. What you'll hear tonight is based on interviews with participants in that conference. The concept of a forest decline is an old one, and examples of it are familiar. Dutch elm disease has decimated the stately elms of eastern North America, leaving only scattered remnants. Chestnut blight has been equally devastating to native North American chestnut species. There have even been declines for which no cause has ever been found, like the dieback of paper birch in eastern Canada in the 50s. But all these previous declines have involved only a single species. What is going on today is evidently different. It involves many species in many different areas, all exhibiting remarkably similar symptoms. Tom Hutchinson is a professor of ecology and forestry at the University of Toronto. We've got substantial areas of decline in Central Europe especially in Germany, Switzerland, Austria, 
but also now up as far as southern Sweden and certainly in the Netherlands. So there's coniferous species have been dying at high altitude there over about the last 12 to 14 years. And if we look at the North American situation, very shortly after the Germans started reporting this, within two years, we began to get reports in North America of red spruce dying right through the Adirondacks and all the way down now to um, South Carolina. We also find, when I look at it, that we have the same problems on the mountains in Quebec. This is a widespread phenomenon that's in both in Europe and in North America has started with coniferous species and then appears to have involved hardwood species. So European beech is dying very extensively. Ash is dying in Europe. Um, they've now got oaks dying in Europe. And if you look at the American context or the North American context, we've now got sugar maple dying, we've got green ash dying extensively, we've got beech dying extensively, silver maple, um, red maple to some extent, black cherry to some extent, and so on. In other words, it's a multiple species phenomenon. That immediately, almost immediately anyhow, rules out a key pathogen, a key fungus disease, because it's multi multiple species. There is suggestive evidence that this decline, which now involves such a wide area, may have begun as much as 20 years before the damage actually became visible. One of the researchers who has uncovered this evidence is Robert Brooke, a plant pathologist at the University of North Carolina. Beginning about seven or eight years ago, scientists from Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee and ourselves began taking what really has amounted to thousands of increment cores. This is an actual metal tool that's put in the tree to extract what looks like a pencil. And what it is is from the center of the tree on out. And as I hope everybody knows, trees put on an annual ring every year. You can, this is called dendrochronology, the study of these rings. Fact is, is that very bluntly, and it's, I think it's really accepted as being fact right now, for whatever reason, and we don't know the reason, beginning in a very narrow period of time, approximately 1958 to 1963, there was an abrupt, synchronous, and in many cases, severe suppression of the annual ring width, simply meaning less wood was being produced each year by these trees. Very important to note that at that time, and indeed today, many of the trees showing this symptom have no other symptoms at all. They're green, they look perfectly healthy, yet for some reason, from Maine to Georgia, the entire Appalachian chain, high elevation, mind you, showed a very synchronous suppression of growth. I should mention that in Central Europe, it was also noted that the same phenomena occurred, particularly at high altitudes. Robert Brooke is a cautious scientist and hazards no guess at the cause of this dramatic slowdown in growth. But it's at least plausible to suppose that it was the harbinger of the current decline, the first sign of trouble to come. Why it would have happened exactly when it did is hard to say. If air pollution is the cause, then certainly air pollution didn't begin in 1960. But botanist Dick Klein at the University of Vermont says that things have happened in the post-World War II period which have changed both the scope and the type of air pollution to which forests are exposed. One was the existence of the tall stack. Inco, for example, has the largest phallic symbol in the world up in Sudbury. While the fallout from Inco and from 
power plants, etc., of acidic components and other components that we believe are involved in forest decline and lake decline existed then as well, they fell locally. Suddenly, a place like Vermont or places in eastern Quebec, etc., are being assaulted by materials that are derived from stationary sources, power plants and smelting plants, etc., that are quite literally thousands of miles away. A couple of other things happened as well. As a result of the Clean Air Acts that were passed in the United States, and I think in Canada as well, the black smoke was removed from smokestacks. This black smoke uh, is given the name of fly ash, and it's alkaline. And by removing this, the acidic components simply came, were allowed to pour out of the chimney. So there's a second factor. A third factor started after the end of World War II, about 1946, 1948, and that was the high compression engine in uh, the family automobile. When there is a high compression engine, nitrogen gas, which is quite inert and completely innocuous, is put into contact with a flame, the spark in the cylinder, in the presence of metals, which act as catalysts, converting this inert nitrogen into nitrogen oxides. 40% or so of the nitrogen, which is a pollutant, is derived from the high compression engine. The high compression engine did not exist in a grandfather's Model T fliver. So we have then new sources of the material uh, as well as older sources which are much more widespread. The timing here is imprecise. Clean Air Acts and Superstacks came after the high-altitude evergreen stopped growing. But the population of cars with high compression engines increased exponentially after the Second World War, and this may be enough by itself to account for the initial suppression of growth. Superstacks and the elimination of fly ash then made the problem worse. Large quantities of acid, in places up to 20 kilograms per acre, began to rain down on forests already bathed in the ozone and nitrous oxides being produced by cars. The first symptoms of decline began to show up in Central Europe in the 70s. In Germany, Bernard Ulrich of Göttingen University was the first to report the phenomenon. While pursuing quite different research on the cycling of materials through forest ecosystems, he noticed that the soil was becoming increasingly acidic. I came to the conclusion that uh, under these stress, under these acid load, the forest cannot continue as it has done millenniums before. And so I said, okay, we will get uh, a forest decline within the next years to decades. I didn't realize that it, it has been already going on in some parts, let's say in Czechoslovakia. I didn't know this, but uh, from our data, it was a conclusion. So you guessed it before you observed it. Right. And afterwards, I have been asked, tell me, show me where it is. <laughs> uh, this was in 1979 when I came out with this paper. And uh, we had then two, three years which uh, really 
triggered uh, increase in defoliation of the trees and really showed up the problem on a larger scale. And how much of the West German forest is affected in a uh, serious way? Yeah, although in, uh, uh, in total it's an area of around 50% in a serious way. If we look at this defoliation, it's uh, around 15% in a serious way. But if I look on the changes in soil, then I say, it, I have to say, according to our surveys, it's more than 80% which is seriously affected. At around the same time that Bernard Ulrich was observing the beginnings of forest decline in Germany, the problem also appeared on the mountains of eastern North America. Robert Brooke does his research on Mount Mitchell in North Carolina, the highest peak in the eastern United States. The spruce fir ecosystem has basically collapsed over the past 10 to 15 years. Uh, what was a very healthy mantle of huge trees, red spruce trees often in excess of 125 feet high, and girths in excess of 60 inches in terms of their diameters, Fraser fir trees, which were just beautiful, that's a major Christmas tree species in the eastern United States, have died. Uh, as of right now, probably in the area of between one-third and one-half of all the trees in the Black Mountains, which include Mount Mitchell, are dead, many of them are declining, and the rate, in fact, has been accelerating. At first, Brooke and his colleagues looked for natural causes for what they were seeing. They did not initially suspect that air pollution might be involved. Why would they, Brooke says, when they were apparently in the middle of a vast wilderness? When they did begin to realize that long-distance transport of various air pollutants might be involved, they set up a monitoring program and made some horrendous discoveries. What we have learned, particularly in the southern Appalachians, and I'm not going to speak for any other area beside there, is that we are regularly exposed to deposition of extremely acid cloud moisture. Clouds contribute more than two-thirds of all the water to these ecosystems, and in fact, we have learned that more often than not, it's in the 2.5 range in terms of the average deposition in terms of pH of these clouds. Very acid. How acid is 2.5? 2.5. Well, I can give you the best way of dealing with it. Vinegar is 3.2. Lemon juice is 2.2. So somewhere between lemon juice and vinegar, this is what's being dumped on these trees in terms of its pH range. Very acid. Point simply being is that we have now twice in 77 and 78 made observations that at the time of bud break, that's the time when the actual new needles start flushing out of the tree, that if a cloud of very low pH settles in on the mountain at that time and has a significant amount of moisture deposited on these needles, and, and this is of course, is, is, all these ands come together, there is a nice, clear, sunny, warm day after that event, which is not asking too much, very common phenomenon, we actually have observed needle burning. The tips of these needles look like they are desiccated, like somebody simply took a syringe and sucked the water out of them and they dried out. What we have done, of course, we're not simply looking at that, we collect these needles, we analyze them through the auspices of the Environmental Protection Agency, and have found out that there's approximately, on average, tenfold more sulfate in these burnt needle tips than there are in healthy tissue. The one thing that we know is that sulfate is not a natural part of the forest environment. It has to come from somewhere. And of course, where it has come from, undoubtedly, is the cloud deposition of these acids to these trees. Nearly a thousand miles to the north of Mount Mitchell, in northern Vermont, 
is another study mountain called Camel's Hump. Here, University of Vermont botanist Dick Klein pursues his research in equally ravaged surroundings. The top of Camel's Hump Mountain, the area where it was originally spruce and fir, consists of small isolated patches of fir and virtually no spruce at all. Thus, it looks as if a giant hand came across it and wiped out all of the spruces, leaving tangles of trunks, gaps consisting of patches of fern or very young birch trees or just herbaceous flora. It doesn't look like a forest any longer. Dick Klein has studied the dramatically changing ecology of Camel's Hump with melancholy fascination. He has come to the conclusion that what has happened is now irreversible. The evidence that we're accumulating in our study mountain, which I think has clear applicability to other severely impacted areas, is that the forest decline itself has so altered the natural ecosystems that they are going to continue to react, to respond to the factors for a long period of time. Some of these, particularly the red spruce, may, at least on our study mountain, disappear to be replaced by something else, plants that are more resistant or have special attributes. So recovery in the sense of the return to what the forests were before there was any sort of an insult uh, is unlikely. They won't be bare rocks. They will, however, be different forests than they are now. Their st the stability of these new forests, the composition of these new forests, uh, is frankly something that one can only guess at. But whatever is going to result from this, it's going to be a long, long time before we really know what's happened, and equally a long time before a new stability of a forest can be seen. The changes in Camel's Hump were already underway by the late 70s, but they were out of sight on a mountaintop. In the early 80s, decline began to show up for the first time in economically important forests when it hit the maple syrup producers in southern Quebec. Willie Hendershot is a forest ecologist at McGill University's McDonald College. The problem in Quebec seems to have been identified in 1982. And that's when farmers in an area south of Quebec City began to complain that their sugar bushes were dying. And so they created enough of an impact that the Ministry of Energy and Resources of Quebec started to look into the problem. And they have been following the development of the forest decline, particularly the maple decline in Quebec since that time. And it's hard to say exactly what the rate of spread is because what happened was the study spread out over the next three or four years after 1982. And so it gives the impression that the disease was spreading out from the central point, but I'm not sure that that's true. It may just be that... We were noticing it. Yeah. We were quite surprised in 1985 
we had a, a study going in a watershed north of Montreal. And one of my students did a survey of all of the trees that were in the watershed, just to, to get a, an accurate picture of, of what the species composition, et cetera, was in that watershed. And when we did that, we found that 25% of the trees were dead. And we hadn't really, we hadn't really noticed this. I mean, we had been working on the movement of water through the soils, and we hadn't really been studying what was going on in the air. But it's very unusual that you would have 25% of the trees being dead. And that was before the problem had really been identified as being serious in that part of Quebec. The dieback of sugar maples in Quebec began to bring forest decline into focus. The problem hit maple syrup producers where it hurts, and they brought the situation to public attention. Michael Herman is a director of the International Maple Syrup Association and was once a maple syrup producer near Knowlton. I had been um, actually making maple syrup for nine years, and I knew that statistically my trees weren't giving me the yield that I could expect. I was getting more barrels in to my sugar house and not filling them. And then I became aware very unconsciously because I wasn't grown up as a forester, I didn't take any training, that something was wrong with my trees and I didn't feel right about it. And uh, I started losing my young trees first and um, the trees that were sort of six to nine inches that had never been tapped before, the top would just drop off them. And I go, well, that's the tree that I'm hoping that I would be able to tap because it's in between these two larger trees and it would help support my pipeline, what happened to that? And then I noticed I'd lost nearly all my young trees. And then the, uh, the older trees started showing dead branches and the, and the classic symptoms of decline that we know about now. Something is really wrong. So far, overall maple syrup production in Quebec has not been reduced. But Michael Herman says that this is only because producers have been able to compensate for the damage by moving into less affected areas and making big investments in new technology. Michael Herman himself now buys high-quality syrup for sale to the gift and gourmet trade. And as a buyer, he sees firsthand the difficulties many producers in his area are facing. They are making so much less syrup and of lower quality that their actual paychecks are going down dramatically. And they are hurting. And besides the financial hurt, which farmers are incredibly, uh, they're tough, they're they'll find a way around a temporary financial setback. But besides that, they're in cutting out sugar bushes that they have, they're maybe the third or fourth generation to receive from their parents. And they know that that, that bush will no longer be alive when it's time to give it to their son. And this is a very important thing to them. And they're asking me, Michael, what do you recommend? What do you think I should do? Should I cut it while it's still alive? And get some money out of it? Or do I try and, you know, do I just leave it and let, uh, see what happens and, and give it to my son the way it was given to me? It's not really within the uh, family farmer's perspective to, to call in the loggers and cut down his maple bush. That's been protected and, and thinned and taken care of for generations. The problems plaguing producers in Quebec soon became evident in Ontario as well particularly in areas along the Canadian Shield. Don Goltz farms near Milford Bay in Muskoka and makes maple syrup from a sugar bush that his father and his grandfather tapped before him. 
His farm was one of the sites visited by the Forest Decline Conference, and as he showed us round, he told us how he had become aware that his bush was declining. The lady wanted to bring a bunch of people in to show them this acid rain uh, situation, what it was doing to the trees. And they wanted to know if they could use my bush, and I said, sure, but I don't think I've got any problem. So we went walking through the bush, and then I started to realize like, what you can see in this tree here, the odd dead twig and so on and so forth. And it's just been multiplying ever since. Uh, it's not only the maples, that section of trees straight over there with the dead tops, that's a white ash. The one right behind me back in here is a cherry tree. And that big oak there, although it's an old tree, it's been struck by lightning three times, it's uh, also being affected with the die off on the end of the branches, you know. Another problem, I think, is the soil. And somebody made a comment to me walking up the driveway. I don't know who it was, but you know, like, how do you even get the trees to stand up? Because we do not have much of a subsoil at all, as you can plainly see. The trees are just growing in among the rocks. All the good workable land is uh, used for farmland or pasture land. So when we do get this acid rain, if that's what the problem is, it's in high concentration because it's, uh, there's no subsoil for it to soak into. You know? As we tramped through Don Goltz's bush, it became obvious that the damage was severe. Some of the crowns had fallen off and were lying beside the trees on the ground. A number of young trees also showed dead twigs and thinning crowns. You see the, the leaves that actually did come out, but now they're uh, browned and dried off. That limb on the left, it's just on its last way out. That uh, large tree over there, the first limb on the right, it's got the same type. That's the way I've been noticing it for years, is uh, they come out in foliage in the spring, and then you'll see the leaves uh, dry up in the middle of that uh, summer before fall comes. Well, then, of course, the next year there's nothing comes out at all. Five years ago, I said to some people who were asking me, I said, I'll bet you in 10 years it isn't going to be worth my while tapping. And that's five years ago, and the rate it's going, I think I'll be hitting right on the button. About 10 miles north of Don Goltz's farm, we visited another sugar bush that had once belonged to Ian McLaughlin. His trouble began in 1979 when tent caterpillars defoliated his trees. Instead of recovering the next year, as he expected, they began to decline rapidly. By the time he was forced to sell out in 1984, nearly a quarter of his crop trees were already dead. What I'm looking at now is the remnants of what was once an absolutely beautiful mature sugar bush. In 1974, standing in this place, this would look like a Gothic cathedral with the high leaf canopy fully shading the forest floor. Today, there's raspberries growing at the ground. The leaves are decimated, broken, dead trees surround me. I'm looking at basically a remnant of previously beautiful wood. Ian McLaughlin's problem with tent caterpillars illustrates the difficulty in pinning down the cause of forest decline. Air pollution is not the only stress on forests. Many are sited on poor soils. This is particularly the case on the Canadian Shield. The weather in the 1980s has been abnormally warm. Last summer there was drought. Insect defoliations and other pests are recurrent. Willie Hendershot thinks that what is probably happening is that pollution effects are weakening the forest ecosystem as a whole, 
and in this weakened condition, normally tolerable stresses become intolerable. There have always been insect defoliations. There have always been abnormal climatic events, and those don't normally cause the forest to die because the forest should be strong enough to go through that and come out the other side in relatively decent shape. You'll lose, say, a couple of years' growth, but then the trees will come back. But this time, it seems to be different. This time, instead of the trees being defoliated and coming back the next year, they're being defoliated and dying the next year. So it's as if the system is in a weakened condition, and then you get all of these abnormal events, but which are not really abnormal, but they're just cyclic. They're low-probability events that have always occurred. And when they come through, they weaken the trees further, and the tree dies. How pollution actually weakens the trees is a study which has absorbed the energies of Tom Hutchinson of the University of Toronto for a number of years. He and his students have analyzed what's happening at a number of decline sites in Ontario, and he's come to the conclusion that exposure to acids in the air and the soil is resulting in nutritional problems for the trees. If you take foliage from healthy versus declining trees, in, say on the shield areas, and chemically analyze them, you'll find in almost all cases that the foliage from declining trees is lower in essential elements like calcium, um, magnesium, potassium, phosphorus, nitrogen, and so on, and some trace elements too, things like zinc and manganese, uh, compared with the healthy trees nearby. These can be within the same site, maybe just uh, you know 50 meters away. So there's something nutritional that's gone wrong with these trees. If we analyze the soils, we find the same sort of thing. Particularly, we find that the soil solution from declining trees um, is elevated in aluminum and low in phosphorus. So those are two common patterns. It's also frequently low in calcium. OK, that doesn't really necessarily prove anything. It suggests there's nutritional problems. But if we collect soil from beneath healthy trees and beneath declining trees, okay, and bring it back separately to the lab, to the greenhouses, and then we put those, that soil into pots and put sugar maple seedlings on them, and then we ask those seedlings how they like growing on that soil, what they tell us is they do not like growing on the declining soil. So we've taken it away from all acid rain, all pollution effects in the field, all climatic differences. The only thing is the difference in the soil, and there's something substantially the matter with the soils from beneath declining trees now. What's the connection between poor nutrition and pollution? The air pollution effects in general will cause the cells in the leaves to become leaky. So that uh, instead of them not being, well it's like a balloon that's developed a few small leaks, it doesn't actually blow up. But if you've got water in your balloon, which is like your cell, and it becomes leaky, some of that solution can start coming out. So they start losing essential elements, which are rather precious. They start losing things like calcium and magnesium as a result of, of the membranes being um, interfered with by the pollutants. Both sulfur dioxide and ozone do this. With the root systems, the problem is that um, sugar maple particularly is a shallow rooting species. So a high percentage of its roots are within the first few inches of the ground, of the surface of the, of the soil. This means that if you've got any acidic deposition going onto the surface of the soil, that will, just like putting acid into your, into your kettle to get rid of your calcium deposits, 
it picks, it makes uh, the calcium and things soluble, and these will get leached out of the soil. So it gradually depletes the soil. It's like an acid wash going on continuously through those soils. And the aluminum? Well, um, under acidic conditions, there are some elements which are normally not in solution, which begin to move into solution. So they're normally insoluble. There's lots of aluminum in your soil, naturally, but it's not, it's uh, inert, it's um, insoluble. But as soon as your pH begins to get quite acidic, then some of that aluminum starts to go into solution because it's now soluble under acidic conditions. And it's pretty toxic to plant root systems and to, to microbial populations. So we begin to get problems of root toxicity from aluminum. And it does another nasty thing, apart from its own direct toxicity, it also interferes with phosphorus uptake and phosphorus transport, and it also will interfere with calcium uptake and magnesium uptake. So one of the characteristics of soil acidification is an increase in aluminum and a decreased availability of phosphorus, calcium, magnesium. The release of aluminum has secondary effects as well. Because aluminum is so acutely toxic, a tree will change the distribution of its roots in order to avoid it. And this, according to Willie Hendershot, then involves the tree in further difficulties. What it tends to do is to bring the roots out of the mineral soil and put them into the organic layers at the top, where the litter is. Because by doing that, it avoids all of the aluminum, which, or a lot of the aluminum, which is more in the mineral soils underneath. So the tree has this mechanism of bringing its roots closer and closer to the surface as the soil becomes more and more acidic. But what that also means is that it is losing a lot of volume that it used to exploit to find nutrients and that may be the cause of other nutrient deficiencies. For example, the potassium deficiency. One of the German scientists, Ulrich, has suggested that one of the reasons we're seeing potassium deficiencies in our forests is because the roots are no longer as deep in the profile. They're concentrating at the surface where the potassium is less abundant. And the, the trees are experiencing difficulty in, in obtaining potassium just because the roots are no longer exploiting the same volume of soil as they used to. Another way in which acid deposition is altering soil ecology is by disturbing the microbes on which the trees depend. And this is an effect which particularly worries Tom Hutchinson. One of the things that's, uh, that we're beginning to get involved in, and some groups in Quebec are also, is this relationship between these rather delicate tree roots in the upper levels of the soil and these fungal associates that they have. Now this is a beneficial relationship. These are not fungal pathogens. They go under the general term of mycorrhizal fungi. And they're absolutely essential for the uptake of certain nutrients, particularly phosphorus and nitrogen. Now, as the roots expand through the soil in the spring, these fungi will, if you like, attach to the roots, penetrate them, but they're not parasitic, and they will establish themselves as a very fine mesh around the roots or internally as a network. And these mycorrhizal fungi then get the carbon supply from the tree, and in return for it, they increase the absorptive surface, the uptake surface, enormously for the tree root, and they pull in the phosphorus and the nitrogen and things which the roots need. You can demonstrate, and it's been demonstrated, that in the absence of these mycorrhizae on nutritionally poor soils, the trees fail to thrive. 
In fact, they deliberately now inoculate conifer roots with these fungi to improve growth on, on poor sites. Now, one of the big worries about this forest decline problem is that it looks as if the mycorrhizal relationships with the sugar maple, and that's really all that's been looked at so far, is in trouble. And interestingly, it looks as if the mycorrhizal relationship, quite different fungi, but ones associated with red spruce at the high altitudes are also in trouble. So we're probably changing the chemistry of the soils in a way which is unfavorable to these rather precious mycorrhizal fungi. And this is why I say we, we, we're doing things which are, are threatening the environment quite inadvertently and in ways which we frankly do not understand. And we've got to be very careful about this. The whole life on Earth depends on about the top six inches of the soil. Well, you're lucky enough to have six inches of the soil. You know, and it's Murphy's Law that the pollutants through the air are going to land on the top of the soil. I mean, that's just the way it is. And that's the worst place for putting pollutants, metals and organics and things into the soil. Because that's just where your root systems are. Because the problems of declining trees are often nutritional, it is possible to improve their condition by feeding them with fertilizer formulas which match the observed efficiencies. This will not improve the condition of the soils about which Tom Hutchinson is so worried, but for the trees at least, it appears to be a successful stopgap. Willie Hendershot has been conducting fertilizer trials in Quebec sugar bushes for several years. What we did was we set up at each location we have a fertilized plot, which is 25 meters by 25 meters, and then a control plot that wasn't fertilized. And we go back every year and see what the differences are between the control plot and the fertilized plot. And this year, after two growing seasons, the trees in the fertilized plots were definitely in better shape than the trees in the control plots, the unfertilized plots. So it looks to us as if these fertilizer treatments are having a very definite effect. The, so this is a major difference, strikingly. Oh, yeah. This is a, oh, yeah. Uh, it's hard to, to evaluate that when you're actually in the bush because you know, there's trees all around and, and it's hard to see what's going on. But what I did was I took a series of four photographs in each of the plots. And when we were in the forest, we had the impression that there was a difference. But when you look at the photographs, it's, it's really incredible because you line up the four photographs for the fertilized plot next to the unfertilized yeah. plot. And the difference in the density of the, the leaves in the fertilized plot versus the unfertilized plot is, is remarkable. The colors is much greener, darker, uh, the leaves are bigger, and what you can really see in the photographs is that in the unfertilized plots you can see a lot of sky through the canopy, yeah. and in the fertilized plots the sky is being blocked out right. by the right. leaves, which is the way it should be in a healthy forest. Right. Last fall, during the federal election campaign, the federal and Quebec governments jointly announced a $10 million program to provide fertilizer to Quebec maple syrup producers. In Ontario, the town of Elmira has successfully fertilized its declining trees, and other hard-hit towns like Alora are now being pressed by their concerned citizens to do the same. However, Willie Hendershot cautions that fertilization is not a solution to forest decline. If you consider uh, sugar maple to be an agricultural crop that's producing syrup, then 
of course, you can treat it like your cornfield and you can add the fertilizers and, and have a healthy sugar bush. I'm quite convinced that you can maintain a, a farm of sugar maple trees. Mm-hmm. But is that a solution to forest decline? No, I don't think so. If you think of the size of the forests in Canada, if you think of the, the revenue that Canada gets from forestry, and you think of the loss that is going to occur if those forests are no longer productive, it will be a, a national catastrophe. Despite the magnitude of this potential catastrophe, neither the professional foresters nor the forest industry appear to be taking the problem all that seriously. The fact that the problem now seems to be spreading to the northern evergreen forests of Ontario and Quebec, which are the forest industry's bread and butter, makes this attitude all the more incomprehensible to Tom Hutchinson. The industry has a very strange attitude to it, which I don't frankly understand. I think a lot of the people, the professional foresters, see this as yet another example of um, sort of environmentalists interfering, even though many of the people doing the research are not long-haired hippies of the 1960s. They're sort of good, solid scientists. But there is this nervousness, this is kind of, uh, that here's more busybodies from outside coming in and telling them there's problems, and they basically want people to butt out. Another reason why government and industry have so far failed to come to grips with the problem is because they have been able to take refuge in its undeniable complexity. Not only are forests exposed to a multitude of natural stresses, they are also exposed to a variety of forms of air pollution. This is important insofar as an acid rain treaty with the United States has come to be viewed as a panacea. Ozone, for example, may be an equally serious problem. Ozone is a sort of supercharged oxygen, which is good for screening ultraviolet radiation in the upper atmosphere, but extremely bad for growing things at the Earth's surface. It's a product mainly of cars rather than power plants, an important point because While the United States has lagged behind Canada in controlling sulfur emissions, Canada has lagged behind the United States in emission controls for cars. American scientists researching forest decline in the Midwest say that they have observed virtually as many decline complexes as they have research sites, and in most of them, ozone is playing just as important a role as acid deposition. Another problem in pinpointing the causes of forest decline is a generally poor knowledge of the ecology of forests. Ecology has not been a priority in Canadian forest studies, says Willie Hendershot, and it's hard to assess the effects of air pollution on processes that are not well understood to begin with. Forestry, in general, has been interested with the extraction of a resource from the forest. In other words, the main interest is getting the wood out of the forest. There's been much, much less emphasis put into studies of how to get trees to grow, and even less on the ecology of forests. For example, we know that these soils are relatively poor in forests. They don't have, they're not rich soils. They're acidic, they're rocky, a lot of them are sandy. And we know that in that situation, most of the nutrition comes from the reutilization of elements that were taken up in the past year. A lot of people know about the tropical rainforest where the leaf falls to the ground and virtually by the time it hits the ground, it's, it's <laughs> being decomposed and the nutrients are being released and being taken up again. The forests of Canada, most of them, 
are operating on a similar sort of principle, except slowed down because it's not so hot. But still, most of the nutrients needed by the trees comes from the decomposition of litter, old leaves and branches that have fallen down and are rotting on the ground. And we really don't understand the processes responsible for the rate of decomposition of the litter, how the nutrients move from the, the decomposing litter to the roots, how they're absorbed, and, and all the rest of it. And so we, we know that this is what's happening, but we don't know exactly the details of the processes. We're not well informed as to what the effect of, say, changing the pollution loading is going to have on these processes, right. and that they're critical. They're, if Without that nutrient cycling, the forest will stop growing. Imperfect knowledge has been a particularly acute problem for American forest ecologists who have been faced with self-serving demands for scientific proof that air pollution is in fact the cause of forest decline. The power industry and the car manufacturers between them constitute the most powerful lobby in Washington, and throughout the 80s, abetted by a sympathetic government, they have stood off demands for stiffer legislative controls on air pollution by calling for more research until the case can be proved. A number of American scientists have seen through this ruse and are now saying plainly that proof, in a narrow scientific sense, is impossible by definition. The question is simply too complicated, they say, and can only be settled on the basis of probability, the same way that epidemiologists have established the link between smoking and lung cancer. Dick Klein is one of these increasingly frustrated and impatient scientists, and he says that the probability that air pollution is involved in forest decline is now so unassailably high that the problem has become entirely a political one. There's a very real sense of complete frustration knowing that basically at this point in the research activities, it doesn't matter a duly damn what any scientist does, finds out, or reports. Basically, at this point, the solutions to the forest decline and lake decline, uh, et cetera, problem is one of cutting off the anthropogenic pollutants, and that is a political decision entirely, and the results that we obtain have absolutely no impact at all on the political process. So this then is a frustrating thing. And it's further frustrating because we can see the thing deteriorating before our eyes and we know that the longer there is a delay, the deeper the hole that we're digging. And we know that basically we can testify before Congress, which we all have. We can attend meetings of scientists, which we all have. We can attend meetings involving the public, such as we are doing now. But that basically it's a political decision and it is not being made. This statement was recorded last summer. On Monday, George Bush takes his long-awaited new clean air legislation to the American Congress. One hopes that it will be the beginning and not the end of action. Acid rain is only one component of the chemical soup that is now our atmosphere. Lower speeds and stricter emission controls for cars will also be necessary. And beyond regulation, says Willie Hendershot, we also need a new attitude. I think that we need 
to have a, a different perspective on the environment than, than we have at the moment. Because at the moment, the environment is unprotected in the sense that the scientists have to be able to prove that something is causing damage before anything will be done about it. And this seems to me to be completely backwards. Why don't the industries have to prove that what they're doing is safe before they're allowed to do it? When, when a drug company wants to put drugs on the market or even when a fertilizer manufacturer wants to get his fertilizer approved, he has to prove that that material is safe before they're allowed to put it on the market. And yet, in terms of environmental issues, we're exactly the opposite, where the companies can continue to pollute as much as they want until somebody can prove that that's damaging. And then there's a tremendous resistance to cleaning up. It seems to me that, that there's something wrong where the environment is taking the back seat to economics. Tonight on Ideas, the last program in our five-part series on the world's forests. It was written and presented by David Cayley. Production assistants Faye McPherson and Gail Brownell. Technical operations by Lorne Tulk. Producer Jill Eisen. Thanks to Dale Willows and the other organizers of the Forest Decline Conference on which this program was based. You can get a transcript of this five-part series. Send a check or money order for $7.00 to CBC Enterprises, Forests, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. And please be prepared to wait eight weeks for delivery. We also have a reading list for the series, which will tell you how to get in touch with any of the organizations whose work we've discussed in these programs. The reading list is free by writing to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.